realize that about me. But uh, I just want to give a shout out to all my patrons on coffee and thank you for your additional support. You know, I'm deeply humbled by the support that you guys give me and for your contribution. Uh, and also just like to let you guys know that I'm also now available on Patreon as well. You can go to patreon.com forward slash JB if you wish to support me further. Now, all that out of the way, I would like to introduce my guest for today. Uh, someone that a lot of us have a lot of respect for and a lot of us uh, tune in to hear on Bad Faith Podcast. She's also the former press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign, Miss Brianna Joy Gray. Miss Brianna? <laughs> So nice Thank you for having me, James. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And by the way, I love how you're wearing the same color as my whole motif that I have here. <laughs> I would like to say that I planned it, but sometimes serendipity is just as good as foresight. So. You're more like a Jean Grey. You were like, hmm, okay, he's using this type of blue. It's more like a cerulean. <laughs> Let's match. Let's go. <laughs> So it's it, it, it's kind of Star Trekish though in a way though you know the blue look I think that I think that Gene Roddenberry had it right when he decided to go with the kind of primary color format I love a strong primary yeah <laughs> so. well I I decided to go with a secondary more like an orange I kind of look like a a, a picnic basket slightly. Stop. No, let's it's be a real. Classic gingham. Can't go wrong with that either. Yeah, well, I mean, orange is my favorite color. Just so that everybody knows, orange is my favorite color. So, I just wanted to put that out there too. Um, I just want to say hello to everybody in this in the chat really quick. Good to see you, Marco, as well as Tony Plow, Matthew Lerma. Good to see you as well. Oh, they said for the win. Nice. I like that. Terry Connolly. So nice to have you. Kay Harris. Welcome to the stream as well. Where Pilgrim. Good to have you in as well. Now, because I do not want to take too much of your time, I would like to get started with just my questions uh, as you know, if possible. Yeah, of course. So... You are a journalist, former press secretary for the Sanders campaign, political comment commentator, and you're a Trekkie <laughs> that started in, in indie <laughs> Most media. Most importantly. Of course. Most importantly. Can you give us a brief summary of how you got into that and what inspired you to get into this independent media space after the Sanders campaign? Yeah, well... But the reality of it is that, you know, when you sometimes go and work for someone like Bernie Sanders, and especially for someone like me, who certainly wasn't angling for a career in politics and has no interest in working for a principle that she doesn't believe in, and understanding the state of politics being that there aren't very many politicians that I would ever consider mm -hmm. working for for that reason, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of world of options are relatively limited. You know, you don't come out of Bernie world and get offered, you know, non-independent media, mainstream media jobs to the extent that True. you would want one. Yeah. Um, I am a lawyer and had no interest in returning to that. Uh, you know, there is some ambiguity about 
my ability to go back to being a straight journalist, having worked for a political campaign, people do it. You know, David Sirota did it, you know, years and years ago and is doing it now and, and it's possible. But honestly, it was very serendipitous where the opportunity came up and I started the podcast and it was successful and I was I'm just very grateful that it enables me to do independent media because I'm not really sure what I would be doing in the alternative. But I initially started writing because I was frustrated by the lack of coverage um, or the, the fact that the coverage back in 2015, 2016 mm-hmm. completely erased the reality of there being uh, diverse non-white people who supported Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And as one of those people, it was like being gaslit for a couple of years there. And mm-hmm. so I started writing kind of out of a sense of, um, you know, feeling like I was be- had been silenced and that mm-hmm. I, it was like almost I was compelled to do so to try to even the, the playing field. And when I did start writing, there was an, an immediate um, positive reception because I think there are so many folks who found themselves erased from the public sphere and gaslit into being a kind of this monolithic Bernie bro trope. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad there was such an appetite for it because that's what ultimately launched my entire career. Yeah. I mean, if, if when you look at it, you do not fit the Bernie bro narrative. Just look. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can sense the same type of frustration. Um, You, despite you looking a lot younger than me, we are relatively <laughs> close in age. Um. Girl, you don't look a day over 21. Trust, trust and believe. Okay, all right. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> me, however, I don't look a day over 25. Um, <laughs> Correct, but neither of us, nobody looks, these kids these days, they post these pictures like, oh my God, they're 30, he's 30, she's 30. And it's like, what do you think happens when you turn 30? Yeah. You know, this isn't, this isn't like pre-New Deal America where people are suffering the vagaries of a hard life and losing teeth and childbirth. We have like moisturizer and sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> and we exfoliate. Sorry? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and that gets on my nerves. I'm just like, you know what? Uh, people are like, oh my God, you're 37? I'm like, oh my God, yes I am. Like, what do you think? Time marches on. I mean, I will say that we are at an age where there is a just a broad range of ways that people can look. Just because yeah. of genetics and life and things. And when you're on apps and scrolling and looking, you can see there is a broad range. But it's a range. And there's lots and lots of people who don't look meaningfully different when they're 37 than they were when they were 27. And I, I want to normalize that, James. I want to normalize that. Yeah, and, and also the the old saying goes is true. Good black don't crack. <laughs> <laughs> you know you heard it before. You know you did. <laughs> She's laughing because it's true. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that that I think that the the primary frustration that people like you and I feel is that we came up in a time where mainstream. Uh, I'm not gonna say mainstream. Corporate media was pushing this narrative that all you had to do was look like us and then we had, you know, what we needed. They did the same thing with Obama. They did the same thing with Condi Rice. 
Uh, they did the same thing with, you know, Clarence Thomas. They're trying to do the same thing with the Supreme Court justice. They did it with Kamala Harris. And for us to be on the left and black, it's kind of, it was kind of different. It was like, wait a minute, you guys aren't completely just liberal like the rest of them? We're like, no. In fact, if you go back into our roots from the civil rights era, you'll see that we definitely called them out just as much as the Republicans do. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the genius of the kind of mainstream neoliberal media machine is that it has erased the, the you know, leftist roots of our domestic black movements here yeah. in America and has done so very neatly uh, and very quickly if you think of how short a time ago it was. This isn't like generations past. It's living generations who have been, you know, de-radicalized into not understanding that the leaders that they were had so much respect for did identify as socialists and mm-hmm. uh, would be perceived as very radical today and were, in fact, yeah. perceived as radical at the time, despite now being emblazoned on the sides of, yeah. you know, whatever McDonald's is posted up on the corner of Martin Luther <laughs> uh, King Boulevard or what have you. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's really amazing. And I, I know there were these moments on the campaign trail. I remember one time in particular, I had been sent to the Alabama Democratic Party conference, which is you know, the Alabama Democratic Party is it's the black people in Al- it's black people. It's black Alabamans. Got it. Got <laughs> and, it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our campaign, Bernie and uh, Biden were the only campaigns that are represented there, except for Bloomberg, who was hosting the event that year, who was what paid for the event that year. Gotcha. And so he gave a speech and then they gave uh, my, our campaign and uh, a Biden representative, Terry Sewell, representative from Alabama, uh, an opportunity to speak. And so she got up there and said her thing about Biden. I got up there and said my thing about Bernie. And afterward, a lot of people came up to me and were like, oh, like, we really liked what you had to say. And I think there was a little bit of that, oh, like, you're a nice young girl and we're so proud of you kind of a vibes going on. And I was like, yeah, like, thank you. And, but are you going to vote for Bernie? <laughs> um, and people were like, I don't know, you know, Biden's going to win no matter what. And there was a sense of inevitability, but those people who were really engaging with me were like, look, I like what you have to say, but I am a proud Democrat and Bernie's not a Democrat. And I would say, okay, but look at the revolutionary tradition that you come from. There was so much, there were so many references that were made to these civil rights icons who did not identify the way that you are de- demonstrating this kind of faithfulness to a party that has betrayed you in so many ways, or at very least not fought for you in the ways that it should have given how dependent it is on your vote. Yeah. And that was a really useful entryway into conversations with a lot of the older black people there who yeah. were receptive in theory, but still had this kind of, tribal commitment to the Democratic Party. Um, And I think that that's why having black leftists is so important and having visible black leftists is so important and why I think there's such an aversion from the mainstream media to accepting or acknowledging that we exist at all. Yeah, for some reason, we're like Oompa Loompas to them. It's like they don't know that we exist until they come into our space. Okay, I didn't mean to do the. Willy Wonka reference, but <laughs> that was the first. I'm serious. That's literally the first thing that came into my head. Look, I'm also a Roald Dahl stan, so I'm here for it. 
<laughs> okay, so uh, my next question. That's not the next question. JB, get it together. Okay. Um, can you give us a glimpse into your journey to the left? And what was one of the biggest lessons that you learned that pushed you further to the left? Well, so I grew up in a house where my mother was always very open about her critiques of the Democratic Party. Her father was a radical, um, oh. you know, uh, changed his name to Ronald X, you know. Uh, My grandfather did too. Islam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, had her uh, listening to Jill Scott Heron and, you know, she went to Howard and tell, talks about how she had already read the entire freshman year curriculum when she was like 13 because her father had made her read it. And wow. was always always had a kind of skeptical but also very uh, humanistic approach to politics and to the world. And we grew up living abroad in part because she says now that she felt the same kinds of frustrations and like we've hit a wall that mm. we're feeling now in the Biden era when Bill Clinton was elected. Gotcha. And so we left the country in 92 and lived abroad until 2001. I missed all of the Clinton years. And when we came back, it was very much a bit of a wake up call for me being thrown right into the boiling water of domestic politics when I had previously had a different more global and attenuated from America perspective. Mm -hmm. And so when political conversations started becoming a bigger part of my life, as I got older, I think I was less rigid in my fidelity to the democratic party than some of my peers might have been mm -hmm. both because I grew up, outside of this context, and also because my mother and my grandfather's influence was to be open to a more kind of radical side of politics. And also, we joke about Star Trek, but I say this a lot on my show, I do think having a blueprint of sorts, in, even if it's in fiction, for a more aspirational kind of world allows you to not roll your eyes at the idea of a more socialist type of community. So I'll have conversations with friends and they'll say, well, what do you want? Like, I want, I don't want poor people to exist either, but what do you want to do? Pay for housing for everybody? <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you want? Just to like pay for everyone to have health insurance? Yeah, my friend. And that Take kind of my hand and come with me <laughs> to a world of pure imagination. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that kind of skepticism, it isn't just, you know, because you're a bad person that you say things like that. But we live in yeah. a world that really constrains your imagination. Yeah. And um, I think that my imagination just wasn't so constrained. And so like a lot of folks, I thought I was just kind of generically a liberal, sort of. I was a Democrat, didn't think too hard about it until people like Bernie came on the scene and yeah. really exposed the gap between what could be done mm -hmm. and what our politicians have been telling us was kind of the max. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mom going to a Bernie rally. I was at work one weekend and her uh, FaceTiming me while I was at the office, toiling mm -hmm. away, doing corporate drudgery. And she was so excited. I was like, where are you, mom? She's like, I'm down here. I'm down here for Bernie. You know, together, united, we won't be defeated. And all this stuff. With her arm, like, flung around some random, like, stranger. And my brother looking very disgruntled under the other arm whom who she had dragged with her. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll like, I'm going to watch this first debate. I'm going to pay attention. Who is this Bernie guy? She's always loved him. And the 
differences were so stark and so obvious. And from that point on, I just was in constant conflict with all of my peers who mm-hmm. could not believe that I liked Bernie. Moreover, that I was black and liked Bernie and would say things to me. All of like the white colleagues at my law firm, I was the only black attorney there, would say things to me like, but black people don't like Bernie. And I'd say, my friend, I am the only black person here. <laughs> and I, in fact, like Bernie. You cannot reason by proxy, you can't you can't proxy this out, especially because it's you and me and we're here and I'm literally black and you're literally white and we're going to have to work through this. Um, so, yeah, I, that's a long way of saying that I, I really do think that my background may be more open to it than mm-hmm. others might have been. But also just the reality of the political moment we were in in 2015 sort of demanded me to redefine myself politically and to define it more concretely than I had ever felt really compelled to do before. Yeah. It sounds like living abroad also kind of put into your mind that it we can't have more we can we can't have nice things. One thing I noticed and this is kind of funny but uh, a few days ago I was watching uh some TikToks. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are living abroad, especially a lot of black people, were basically get you know telling their sentiment that a lot of what we experience here in the United States that we feel that is oppressive or that we feel is uh, is is harsh it doesn't have to be because we can have something better and in fact there are examples abroad that show us that we can. And I noticed that a lot of times when people who travel abroad a lot or who have lived abroad typically also share the same sentiment. Um, One of my colleagues at RBN, uh, Savvy Sabs, Sabrina Salvati, she's Mm -hmm. lived in Germany. And so living abroad gave her, just like you, that scope of, wait a minute, uh... The United States is doing this. This is very backwoods, backwater at, at how they treat healthcare and housing and education. And I'm over here, or I was over there, able to get all these things without having to worry as much. Something is wrong. We can do better. We can be different. We can actually, excuse me, we can actually do beyond what even these countries are doing because we live at the time in the richest country in the history of the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, you'll hear this refrain sometimes from conservatives. Um, well, they'll say, okay, but it's better here than it, you know, there's nowhere else black people would want to (laughs) live and there's nowhere else that black people have ever had it better in the history of there being black people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this came up recently in an episode of, of Bad Faith Podcast. And, you know, it's like, okay, no. But even <laughs> if I granted it <laughs> on some level. You should have hit know, him over the head with a newspaper. Why are bringing this up if we're in the context of having a conversation about how to make things better for black people now? But here in this conversation, we're not going to grant it. And I'm going to point to very recent examples of, like, every black person who had two pennies to rub together in the 1950s and 1960s skied up and went to, like, Paris. You know, Baldwin, all these people, you know, um, all these jazz singers, all these poets and writers and musicians, they didn't leave America 
because it was just like, I want to eat on the Champs-Élysées. No, it's because they felt it was a less oppressive environment for them outside of their own country. Yeah. And again, that's not to say that it was like a halcyon paradise in Europe. But there is a different kind of there's a certain kind of freedom that does exist from being perceived as perhaps other and maybe inferior, but outside of these very particularized American hierarchies that target us in very specific ways and have a whole narrative about what it means to be a black American and who we are that yeah. doesn't exist in other parts of the world. Um, yeah. And there can be a little bit of freedom in being able to be perceived as an individual even as a, as, a, as a generalized black person, as opposed to a black American and all the pathologies that are heaped upon us in this country and that yeah. we're tied with in this country when you're abroad. Yeah. And, you know, my mother loves to remind me, she'd be like, oh, Brianna, my, my, you know, your father and I would be talking about some instance of racism that we had observed at work. Uh, my parents were teachers at my school. And you and your brother would, you know, like get so uncomfortable and be like, oh, you know, you guys are just like reading into that too much. And, you know, like you see racism everywhere. And we were there's a kind of naivete that can come from being outside of an American context, too. Mm -hmm. And it was like a real wake up call when I came back at age 15 and I was still in an international school. But, you know, the hierarchies were as clear as the is on my face. Um, wow. So it works both ways. But it also, I think, is really naive to ignore the extent to which America has perhaps more substantive and better conversations about race than other places, mm -hmm. but also has more like, deeply entrenched pathologies uh, about race than other places at the same time. True, true. Thank you very much for that, that uh, nuanced answer. I appreciate it. Um, what is some advice you would give, especially to black and brown women, uh, well, especially to black and brown people, but, but women as well who want to venture into space. I meant, I misread my question. What are some advice you would especially give to black and brown people, especially women who want to venture into this space? JB, what in the hell is wrong with you? My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Um, so... I'm not the first one to observe that it feels as though there is a certain amount of credibility that certain white people in the left independent media space have, men mm. in particular, that comes from nowhere. And it feels like the people of color and women in the space have to prove their, that they deserve to be there through some credentialing or something in a way that people don't ask about certain white people. And I'm not trying to call anybody out of course, yeah. um, because okay. it's not their fault per se, but I can think of a number of people who sometimes get suggested to me to bring on the podcast. And I, and I'm like, why, why, why would I ask them about this? You would never, you would never be like, here's some random black person with an opinion on the internet, have them on to talk about CRT, Ukraine, whatever. It would be, you know, I'll bring this black person on if they're like a scholar, if it's literally Adolf Reed or Gerald Horn, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or someone who's written a book, Derricka Purcell, Kiangi Amada Taylor, professor, Cornell West. Those are the kind of black people who get allowed in the door. Yeah. But there, I could name a number of white people. <laughs> no shade, because I'm not, this is not an argument for credentialism, but mm -hmm. I'm just pointing out the differences of how we treat. There are a number of white people who are very prominent on the left who... 
have no credentials to their name, have no expertise, apart from they've been engaging in the space and they know things. It's not that they shouldn't be there, but that same kind of um, privilege is not extended uh, universally. And I bring like the, the, the typical example for me in neoliberal space is that you have someone like Chuck Todd, you know, who didn't go to college, which is not an indictment of it not going to college, but the reality that I cannot imagine a world where there's like a black or female version of him that managed to have as much prominence in the media sphere that cares so much about credentialing that he does, right? That's all to say that I, I credit a great deal my existence in this space to a couple of people who, and a couple of institutions that have always been very hospitable to diverse voices. You know, I, my first pieces were published by Current Affairs magazine, mm-hmm. which, again, who knows what my access to them would have been like if I, like most of them, didn't go to the same law school. So mm-hmm. also a hurdle that everyone can't access. But also the fact that Michael Brooks read those articles and invited me on his show very early. I think the first time I went on, it was episode four. And a lot of people, I found him to be so respectful and he's so engaged Mm-hmm. And so substantive. And I noticed as I started watching his show after that, mm-hmm. that he brought in a lot of black people from all kinds of backgrounds and levels of credentialing. And a lot of the people that I know and love on the left that are black, mm-hmm. I was introduced to first through his show. Yeah. So I see what, you know, you know, RBN is doing and I see the way that people are pulling each other up and validating each other in that space. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is so important because otherwise, you know, we are all, we are our only validators. There's no like yeah. cable news network that's going to come in and like dub the legitimate. Yeah. And it's, it's not always the case that though, sometimes it is like, I think the Vanguard guys have been so great about having RBN people on and having different kinds of folks on, but generally speaking, there can be some resistance in these very, niche cliquish brooklyn-y white male left spaces to let anybody else in and i'm really grateful that there is like a place for black people to land and boost each other like rbn and that other outlets like the vanguard is so open and respectful and interested in hearing what different points of view are mm-hmm. and that that is all there is that's all we have and i hope that sort of thing continues and i personally am always very interested to hear and listen to those kinds of channels and those kinds of voices and to have you guys on our show on Mm -hmm. on bad faith podcast Mm -hmm. as well i learn a lot and i hope that everyone pays attention Mm -hmm. to you guys (laughs) in these shows thank you so much i appreciate that i actually have a little bit of a michael brooks story Mm -hmm. um so, I reached out to Michael Brooks uh, when I first started venturing towards the left, and he was nothing but very kind and gracious whenever I spoke to him. Mm. And, of course, I'm still struggling now, but not much has changed since I met him. But mm. when I met him, he started inquiring me about my GoFundMe, and he was like, uh, so, you know, what's going on? Are you are you okay? And I told him about me being on kidney dialysis and, you know, uh, being on disability and how tough it is and things like that. So he goes on his show, and he encourages everybody to go to my GoFundMe mm-hmm. live on his show. Yeah. That 
hit my heart so hard. I was just like, oh my God. Like, this dude barely knows me. And was like, let me help you out. And that's one thing that I deeply had a lot of respect for him for. Not because he, he, he was willing to do that, but the fact that he was willing to engage and find out what was going on with me. It, it, it was, a, it was a, a spirit of solidarity that he showed that I deeply appreciated. And that had a huge reflection upon me and taught me that I needed to do the same more. And so that was just a, a nice little micro book story that I wanted to relay, you know, because, you know, that's the kind of guy he was, you know. He was so generous in a, in a space that can feel, feel very competitive sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lesson there in kind of knowing who you should be competing with and whose success ultimately is your own success. Mm-hmm. Even when you disagree with people, because mm-hmm. we disagreed about plenty of stuff and mm-hmm. third party politics and dumb, dumb left and Jill Stein. And we mm-hmm. used to, you know, go back and forth, mm-hmm. but like it wasn't adversarial. It doesn't make us enemies. We were just people who mm-hmm. had different opinions who still were comrades. Yeah. And that sense of solidarity is I think something that, you know, I struggle with as well. You know, I have my moments and get mad at people on the internet and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm perfect, yeah. but you know, that is a legacy that I hope that we can all um, try to learn from and, and keep, keep alive. That's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. I think he taught, he, he, he taught many people on the left that you can disagree without being disagreeable. Yeah. And that's what I Leo tried. too. So I know he had to work at it. <laughs> We can be a, we can be a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my next question, because I really want to get through these questions, because some of the so some of the questions are actually going to be a little fun. So stay tuned for that. But what is one of the biggest learning curves you had to learn when becoming a content creator in this in the indie media space? Oof. I mean, honestly. This past week or so with the Ukraine stuff has been a real struggle bus. Yeah, it, it's, for me, you know, so. I would never pretend to know anything about foreign policy ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is an expectation, I think, sometimes that everyone be really authoritative in the way they talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. And my my MO, generally speaking, is that I'm not a expert. I'm an interviewer and I have people on the show and I ask them questions and I try to you know, my value add is my analytical ability, but not necessarily my knowledge base mm-hmm. in most areas. Yeah. And generally speaking, I think everyone's comfortable with that and appreciative of that. Mm-hmm. But in this issue area in particular, I think perhaps the gap, you know, my, my knowledge base is so low that there is a great deal of frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's 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 like a higher expectation or something of of being of, of being knowledgeable and having a take and a position like very very early on in yeah. all of this as a lot of us I think are still getting to learn. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting place to be in because I feel like I've never held myself out in any context even things I think I can speak pretty knowledgeably on on being an expert. Yeah. Um but negotiating, you know, these questions of like who does one 
platform and you know are is the audience going to have enough patience for you to talk to different kinds of people over the course of a week or are you going to be judged by the first person you have on your show because that's the way the schedule panned out and they didn't want to sit down with someone with the opposite views you have to take them one by one by one you know and kind of dealing with the slings and arrows of feedback of that you know it's it's fine it's whatever it's my job but it has felt different than certain other things that have come up. The one other time it felt this way was when I tried to cover Tigray. And, you know, many people were upset for various reasons. And it's like, okay, well, let's have, come on the show. Let's, like, do a panel. Let's have people of opposing views. But oftentimes people aren't actually willing to talk to folks of opposing views. which yeah. puts you in the position of having to just become experts in all the things and curate the opinions, which is a tall order, I think, when you're dealing with, crises that are as complex as these are so i would love to say you know there's a part of me that's like screw it i'm not ever doing foreign policy call someone else this is not my problem it's not (laughs) it's not it's not worth the drama but obviously you can't you know you can't ignore the world so i hope i'm just trying to be as transparent as possible and work through it all in real time with folks um yeah from a technical perspective though the learning curve i've been very lucky insofar as the last couple of jobs I've had have trained me in some ways. You know, yeah. doing the Bernie podcast made mm-hmm. doing Bad Faith a pretty easy transition in terms of developing one's interview skills. Being a journalist, being a writer um, before that, being a lawyer, I think also trained me in a certain way to be able to ask questions, to debate, and um, basically depose folks when necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the significant barriers in terms of attracting an audience, I obviously had a big leg up with being associated with the Bernie campaign and being able to afford some of the infrastructure that's required, like having a high quality camera and all of this stuff. I recognize that that's, you know, a real privilege to be able to kind of immediately start with a certain level of, you know, crispness and like technical proficiency. So you know, I, I certainly am not naive about those privileges as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, I tend to think about is if you had a different identity, there's parts of me that sometimes think that you would have, that the, I'd say the algorithm not just identity, but also political thought. I'm going to put those both together. If you didn't have the identity that you have and the political thought that you didn't have, I think that it would have pushed you out further for more mm. exposure. Mm. But unfortunately, the way the algorithm the algorithm works and the type of ideology that we subscribe to it pushes us to the back of the bookstore, so to speak. Um, yeah, I saw um, what's his name, FD FD Salinger, something like that. He's a, a content creator on YouTube, big mm-hmm. channel, black guy. Um, did a video about this recently and how the algorithm like puts black people into kind of a black search box yeah. that can hide them away from people who have substantive agreements with them politically. You're not, not going to, you know, it has to like pick, are you going to go in the leftist box or the black box? And they'll put you in the black box. And then the leftist broadly, the broader community never sees you. And I'm not, I'm not as savvy about that stuff. You know, primarily bad faith. It's a podcast. 
Um, you know, my salary is paid by Patreon subscriptions. I consider YouTube to be more like advertising. Like mm-hmm. I, we do the, you know, put the YouTube videos up so that people in a different context can learn about the show and come over. So I don't fret too much about the videos not doing as well mm-hmm. on YouTube. But I, I observe that oftentimes I feel like, wow, this was the best conversation about X subject that I think I've seen kind of objectively. And a lot of the comments will reflect that as well. Like, wow, this channel is criminally undersubscribed and why haven't more people watched this? And I can't believe these two voices, she got them together and only so many people have looked. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what to attribute that to. Some of it is being a relative late comer. I know that, you know, a lot of folks who've been around for a long time, like, you know, Kyle Kalinske and David Pakman, like they've been here during the early years when there wasn't as much, you know, crowdedness in -hmm. this space. And that is the benefit of sorts. And that's, you know, nobody's fault. It's just lovely to be an early adapter. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do also think some of it are these algorithmic issues that a lot of channels have complained about, including Kyle, who have seen a different change in their their viewership and subscribers of late that is attributed to something a little bit more nefarious than just, like, preferences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do about that other than, you know, everyone should like and subscribe this vid- to this video and to this channel and to really make sure, like, I watch videos that I enjoy all the time and realize, oh, I didn't like that. Like, why didn't I like that? Just like, really, truly, like, even if you can't subscribe and you don't have money and times are tight, I get that. But, you know, liking and subscribing and, like, reposting is free. And if that's the only little bit of solidarity you can do, please... Please like this stream. Please like James's channel. Oh, Please follow you. RBN. Thank you. It, it makes a difference. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, gosh, only an hour. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I was late though, so we should go over at least ten minutes. It's okay. I'm gonna hold you to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. This is going to be more of a policy-driven question, so I would like to get your take on this. This is going to be a hypothetical. Hold on to your hats. Okay. So, you are President of the United States. Mm. President Gray. It is January 20th, your inauguration day. What are the first three actions you're taking as President within your first 100 days? Well, you know I'm going to cancel student debt. I know you're going to do that. <laughs> a girl's going to cancel student debt. <laughs> Look, you're going to do student debt like they did men on film. Hated it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we have to have free uh, public colleges and universities immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's call that just one big thing. Yeah. Um, so this is a question that also, you know, I presume that we're talking executive order land. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, who knows what my Congress is like and if I can get those nimrods to fall in line. So well, you, um, you also have the bully antagoni- antagonizing my base by calling all of my Congress members nimrods. And then I, uh, I probably do the um, uh, using my executive authority to expand Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, my emer- emergency powers to expand Medicare to all for pandemic relief mm-hmm. um, and hope that that helps 
familiarize people enough with the process that it advances the goal of ultimately having real Medicare for all down the line. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, executive power-wise, I have to consult with some people of whether we can like nationalize the energy sector. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you can, because remember when um, Obama did it uh, during the recession for um, the auto industry, and then very quietly just privatized it again. That wasn't necessary, right? He didn't have to do that. And so I do think that something big and climate-related that really probably upset a lot of people but would speak to the gravity of what we need to do with respect to climate change. I mean, watching the way that the Ukraine situation is being used as an excuse to undermine any lip service or any policy nod that was given toward um, climate action is devastating. I'm not going to say one of the more devastating aspects given, you know, obviously the loss of human life, but in terms of like the long reach of what the consequences of this are going to be, I think that's going to be the real untold story, how another oil war is being used as a pretext to fully unwind any progress on climate change in a way that is going to be so cataclysmic. Um, And even if they, you know, assassinate me the day after because I've done all these things, uh, you know, having had that pulpit and behaving in a way that really makes it difficult for the next person in my seat to deny that this is actually what can be done if someone had the political will to do it. I think it would be really important to demonstrate that. Yeah, and, and see, someone seeing that someone at that high of an office having the political will to do it changes the the mentality of the nation because now they can see, oh, they can do all this stuff, which push pressures on the next to. one. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a lot of things. Again, I, I just I have to go over David Dan's list of what I can what <laughs> what I can do by executive authority. But how amazing and some like there are all of these things that you know we're immediately starting construction. You know, a jobs program to build enough houses to completely eliminate. Homelessness, not that it's a housing stock issue, but we do have a housing stock issue in addition to the 500,000 homeless people. Mm-hmm. And to say, okay, a year from now, there's just not going to be that. We're not doing homelessness anymore. Yeah. We're not going to do that anymore. You yeah. know, it's these, there are all of these things that are ultimately fairly small in scale that don't actually require huge systemic changes that people still don't do when they could call them obvious wins. Yeah. And, you know, they have the power to do the Star Trek thing and expand people's belief in government and the, their imagination yes. as to what could actually be done, you know? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Dear God, Brianna. Thank you. Also, maybe some investments in in kind of independent media infrastructure. And I've always thought that, Demo- you know, progressives don't brag enough about their wins. You know, we need to have more, you know, a national day of you know public works and celebration, more plaques and signs that indicate that this, hey, this pool that you're enjoying, this subway, this is a public works project. We built this as a community. We can do more of these kind of things. We can be spending tax dollars on, on building these libraries and these roads and this infrastructure, changing out the pipes in Flint and a thousand other cities across the country that are similarly being poisoned 
you know, those, those kinds of things, those kinds of commitments could really restore people's faith in government and do more to get people to register to vote and like turn out the vote than a million, you know, P. Diddy style T-shirts. <laughs> or Voter die. Right. No, no shade to, to Sean. <laughs> well, a little bit of shade to Sean. A little bit. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, one of the things that I... I honestly uh, think about is what you said about like nationalizing the energy grid. It's like, do you know how much of a boom to the economy that would be if we didn't have for-profit energy sector where your electric bill only paid for maintenance and operation costs, and that was it. And if that being said, then that, like, like a Republican can't say, well, that's going to spend us too much taxpayer money. It's like, no, 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 no. It's going to save us money. It's going to save you money directly it, in it, your it pocket. It makes money. The Tennessee Valley Authority, those public works projects, they made money for the government. At the same time, they delivered energy at lower costs to the people yeah. of those regions. And the reason, you know, the the private industry didn't want to serve those communities because they felt like it wasn't going to be profitable to them because they were factoring in a certain profit margin for themselves that would make it worthwhile. And that's the, that's the whole point of not wanting to have private actors involved in providing these kinds of basic services. And, mm-hmm. and you know, surprise, surprise, surprise to everybody involved. The TVA was a, a profit driver. For the government. They, wow. It, it, it benefited the community and it was a proper job for the government. So, yeah, there's just no excuse. We don't hear those stories told. No, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, and having someone at, with such a big platform talking about it, I think, would be a real boon. Ten out of ten, though. <laughs> You're gonna get got. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I hope you all enjoy my my inaugural address because that's the last time they're gonna let me start talking about like, <laughs> Just build a nice statue for me. That's all I. That's all I ask. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, real talk. Uh, on RBN tonight, actually, we're going to be reacting to the inaugural. I'm sorry, the uh, State, State of the, the Union tonight. Yeah. We're gonna be doing it in real time, so we're gonna be clowning on Joe Biden because. Warmongers deserve to be clowned on. Let's just be real. Um, indeed, indeed. Indeed. I think I told Katie that I would do it over um, with her, I think, on, on Colin. Okay. So we'll all be reacting. It's going to be an interesting evening, to say the least. So my next question is, Bree, what is something you're going to double down on in 2022? I don't know, man. I gotta say, <laughs> she's like, I'm tired. <laughs> I know. I don't want to be like that. Oh, I'm so tired. Like, because you know, the world's smallest violin for me. But I, I am feeling a little like the conversations have gotten a bit circular. Hmm. I, I have people on the show, you know, for a year, year and a half going on. And I ask them questions about what needs to be done, and we analyze the problem, and everyone's on the same page. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, but when are we going to start doing it? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I was I was talking to a friend recently, and I was like, oh, gosh, I wish I could maintain all of these patrons. But instead of putting out podcasts, 
those patron bucks went to just paying my salary to start trying to do some of the organizing work that we talk about on the show all the time. Mm. So, you know, I can just shift to instead of like spending all these time, like booking guests and reading their books and talking to them about things, we just start implementing some plans. And I'm like, okay, this week, next few weeks, I'm going to spend helping the debt collective put together a media plan for how they can make this debt strike event in advance of the student loan moratorium ending on May 1st, the biggest and best revolutionary action it can be. Um, you know, we're, we're going to do, whether it's a mutual aid project, whether it is sometimes an electoral project, whether it is a protest project where we're like tired of being jealous of Canadian truckers and we do our own civil disobedience that gets national attention. Like I, I, I sometimes just, I want to stop talking about it um, and start doing it. And I don't know how possible that is, but that's kind of where my mind's at these days. And additionally, I I would like to double down on actually doing some writing this year. Because there is something that feels very ephemeral sometimes about the conversations. And sometimes I think there's some cohort of the public mm -hmm. that would take some of this more seriously if it existed yeah. in book form rather than YouTube video form. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the mind space I'm in for mm -hmm. 2022. I don't know. What are you doubling down on in 2022? <laughs> first of all, we're going to go back to that amazing idea that you just posted in the first part that you moved on very quickly from. That was a great idea. I'm just like, wait, what? Bree, that was a good idea, by the way. Wait, what part? The part of, oh, gosh, you said it so you much eloquently than I could. Stopping uh, the podcast and just doing the things. Well, I mean, why not both? Kind of like that little girl said. Well, you know, I mean, for some of us, it, 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 it's it's more time consuming, and so we don't have the time to do it. But I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to do on RBN a little bit. Um, yeah. And so it it feels like. Um. You you want to push that revolutionary spirit as well, which, uh, look, you came up with ideas way better than I could, you know. Um, so, I mean, hopefully somebody, you know, within our space sees this, you know, because for me, it's more of an energy cost and a, a time and energy cost for me because of being on dialysis and disabled. And for you, there's some different types of costs as well. But other people who are in this space can also do other things as well. And like Rome always says, you know, you need different types of rep people for the revolution. Yeah. That, be you know, that being said, you know, you could be the idea person and someone else can be the execution person. Well, so. but this is the thing. And this came up when uh, Afini was on my call-in show last week mm -hmm. uh, after we did the, you know, the Marianne event. Um, and we were having this conversation with the value of electoralism and stuff. And people were asking her as someone who's, you know, very sympathetic to the frustrations with electoralism, but uh -huh. also still working for a candidate, you uh -huh. know, how she manages that. And part of what came out of that conversation was, you know, being an organizer does not put food on the table. <laughs> like it's not a lot of times I think people go into these electoral spaces in part because it's the only way you can kind of get paid for doing sort of the work you want to do. Mm -hmm. And and that's not like a bad thing. I mean, people have needs, you know. And I wish sometimes I think sometimes the left is like, oh well, just 
if you care, do it in your spare time. And because people do care, they do it in their spare time. But what I would like to see is more paid jobs where people are being paid to do the work that's so valuable, you know, and not feeling you. like they have to join a campaign to get a salary to do the work that's meaningful to them. You know, there's you. a world where instead of paying a producer to edit videos, I'm paying someone what is a good salary mm -hmm. to put their mind on planning revolutionary events, mm -hmm. you know, actually having a website and an organizational structure and lawyers who can make sure donations are going to the right place. So you don't end up in this BLM national org situation that they're in gotcha. where there's no accountability and no one knows where $60 million is gone, as we talked about in a recent episode, True. you know, and that there are people who have skills that do come from a certain kind of experience and training, oftentimes in sectors that don't do good work. Mm -hmm. I say this as someone who was a corporate lawyer. I have friends that went to business school and left their consulting firms because they hated it and it was evil and they read Anand's book and they agree and you know and they do have a skill set that is like actually valuable sometimes they would look around the campaign being like god this could really use someone with some management experience every year yeah <laughs> you know and I think that sometimes the left is a little you know a little naive about some structural issues that could really help us win and anticipate what's thrown at us you know hmm um, and people like that would come and work in the sector, but there has to be some kind of job. You know, there true. has to be, you know, they, they you know, they got in business school. <laughs> yeah. There has to be some kind of job if they're going to come. There's not that there's an expectation that you're going to get paid a bay in salary, but you know, I, I don't, I don't like that we are expecting everyone in our family to do work for free. That seems messed up to me. I got so you. if people are willing to pay $5 for a podcast, I would love it if they would pay $5 for a revolutionary structure that they could depend on. The same way that people pay $5 a month for Matt Bruning to do the amazing work that he does at the People's Policy Project. Because he's into, he's seen that there is not a left policy network the same the way there is a neoliberal policy network. And we, need to, we, we are always going to have to self-fund because the billionaires aren't going to fund projects about how to nationalize the energy sector. <laughs> Yeah. And how to um, nationalize healthcare? They're, I mean, that's not their bag. Yeah. So we're going to have to do it. It's not going to come from on high. It's not going to be Koch brother funded. We save us. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great. That was a great explanation. Thank you so much. Um, what is one food that you can't <laughs> live without? We're getting to the fun hey. questions now. Eggs. Eggs? Eggs. Really? Eggs. Okay, I'm judging you. I'm sorry? <laughs> I'm judging you now. <laughs> well, no, look, so I, I, I um, stopped eating gluten and dairy because it was causing me to break out mm -hmm. uh, for inflammation reasons. And when you eliminate gluten and dairy, cheese was my favorite food, but <sighs> what you going to do? What's left? What's left? Like, bread is the substrate that everything in America is served on. Uh, you want you know, burger, pizza, pasta. Every food is put on bread as a de delivery vehicle in the United States of America. If you're in a different country, it's like rice more. And you go out and you can get food because it's like on rice. But in America, if you're out, especially if you're traveling, it is impossible to eat in a way that doesn't put bread front and center. So when I'm at home... My delivery vehicle is eggs. Oh, I have. do I have some sausage? Chop it up and put it in eggs. Do I have some vegetables? 
make a frittata out of it. Do it, make a make a little rice bowl with a runny boiled egg or fried egg on top with some roasted sweet potatoes. You know, but egg you know it's a miracle. It's a miracle food as far as I'm concerned. It's delicious. You're, you're a skeptic. <laughs> well. I've never been a fan of eggs growing up, and I still am not a fan of eggs. Really? Not at adult. all? Mm-mm. Me, me and my boyfriend, we don't like eggs. Is you don't like the taste? You don't like the texture? Both. Even like a yummy, cheesy omelet with hash browns, you don't like Look, that? Look, it has to be full of like cheese and meat and veggies and like mushrooms and onions in order for me to be able to eat it. Like, it, it it has to, like, I have to taste, like, everything else besides the egg. Like, I can use it as a filler for something, but pretty much, yeah. I'm wow, so what's guy. the food that you couldn't live without? Oh, God. Oh. See, this is why I shouldn't have journalists on, because they refer the question back on me. <laughs> and now I have to think, oh, geez, uh, JB, what, 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 um. <laughs> without is a different question than what's your favorite food i know i know i i I know i know (laughs) brie i know (sighs) Uh, damn it spaghetti okay yeah you could not live without spaghetti no Mm -mm. no no I make a baked spaghetti that will, that will, that will, it will, it will, it will resurrect you. <laughs> okay, like, this is funny because growing up, I hated spaghetti. But the, the, here was the issue. Why am I on the show then? Oh my God. <laughs> Why are you here? Okay, I, let me let me justify this. My mom, so my mom was always big into health food, and like way before the curve, you know, she was out here in the and she was you know, vegetarian in the eighties and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, growing up, when she would make spaghetti, it would be like big, thick wheat, whole wheat brown noodles. There would be big chunks of like green peppers in there, not nearly enough meat, and it would be like. Tur- ground turkey with like no flavor and it was like chunky and vegetable without enough sauce and I hated spaghetti I, we'd be like what's for dinner tonight and she would say spaghetti and I would throw a tantrum on the floor then at one point in like middle school or high school my one of my brother's best friends parents were Italian and we went over to the Martin's house for dinner and Mrs. Martin made spaghetti and I was sitting there thinking lord I gotta eat spaghetti spaghetti so nasty and she put this food on my plate, and it was the most divine thing I had ever tasted in my life. She was like, real deal, fresh, homemade pasta, homemade sauce, like legit Italian dinner, family spaghetti. And I realized that it wasn't spaghetti's fault. It was just that my mom <laughs> doesn't make the best spaghetti. She makes other wonderful things. Yeah. Love you, mom. And like, we're so healthy. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> the spaghetti was not it. Yeah. I want to try an authentic, authentic carbonara. Oh my gosh, I want to try that so bad. I, I saw a recipe being done on YouTube, but I'm gonna try it. But I want to get to my last question because uh, I want to make sure that everybody hears it on the podcast. Uh, okay, two more questions. The first one is, what is your favorite curse word? Ooh. 
there's like these <laughs> obvious options that are out there in the world. Yeah. But honestly, I like a lot of like old timey words. Like people make fun of Joe Biden saying malarkey, but that's like one of the most charming things I find about him <laughs> as a person. Probably the only thing charming about him. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, but I like a lot of like Yiddish expressions. Hmm. I find them to be just very evocative and hmm. like precise in a way that I always can't find in English. Mm-hmm. Um, but like full on curse words. I mean, what's be- I mean, is there anything better than the F word, honestly, in terms of like 